Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. I'm here with Keith Gottfried, a partner in the DC office of Morgan Lewis. He heads the Morgan Lewis's shareholder activism defense practice. I've known Keith for a very long time. Thank you so much for participating. My pleasure. So first, I thought I would just do a little bit of uh, some, some, a little bit of background on uh, Keith's uh, extensive history and uh, defending companies against activists. And then uh, I have some interesting statistics that, that are related to this topic that we're going to talk about. So first, Keith has advised Safeguard Scientifics in his defense against Sierra Capital Investment at a settlement there. He advised Alaska Communications in his defense against the proxy contest threat by Karen Singer. We've written a lot about that here at The Deal. He also advised Rate Financial Trust in its defense against a proxy contest threatened by Highlands Capital and a settlement there. And Pet Boys in its defense against proxy contest by Mary Gabelli with the settlement there. And a, and a big contest that we actually wrote about a lot also at the deal was um, he advised Perry Ellis in its defense against a proxy contest threatened by Legion. I remember that was withdrawn and, I, and the way I looked at it was a big success for the company. So congratulations there, Keith. Um, of course... Uh, Perry Ellis was ultimately targeted by its founder, George Feldenkrais, uh, who ultimately launched a campaign to a proxy fight himself and a hostile bid to take over the company, and he succeeded in buying it. And that's kind of the subject that we're going to be talking about today, which is founder ex-CEO activism, which is different, very different experience than if you're being targeted by Carl Icahn or Starboard Value or any of the prominent hedge funds. And Keith is an expert in this. But first, um, in case any of our listeners think that this is kind of a one-off type situation, I went and got some statistics. There were 36 campaigns launched by founders, co-founders, and former CEOs at companies between 2013 and 2018. Of those, uh, this year was a record year where there were 11 launched by um, uh, uh, co-founders, founders, or ex-CEOs so far. And like I mentioned, Parallels was one of them. Wynn Resorts, that was Elaine Wynn, the co-founder there. Amtrust and Papa John's, I'm going to be talking about that more, Um, the founder there. Uh, That's up from three launched in 2017, five launched in 2016, nine launched in 2015, six in 2014, and two in 2013. So, uh, you know, expect a lot more of these kind of situations to emerge next year. Uh, So, Keith. Uh, another high, yeah, so I mentioned Papa John's, that's uh, the founder, John Schnatter. He's got a litigation battle there and a letter writing campaign underway. We're writing a lot about that uh, ex-founder, ex-CEO campaign. And so just thinking broadly speaking about that and all these other instances of ex-CEO founder-led activism, um, I suspect that, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about what makes this different from a, when a hedge fund targets. I feel like one area that you had mentioned before involves um, kind of divided lawyers, that there's the loyalties. There are people at this company that are, were hired by the founder who's now on the outside agitating and not happy about where the company's performed and uh, versus the hedge fund where, you know, there's nobody at the company who really knows who they are. Is that, talk about that. That's a, that's a major difference between uh, hedge fund activism and ex founder ex CEO activism. Yeah, Ron, that's right. Because, you know, when you have, you're defending an activism campaign against a founder um, uh, and you, uh, this is somebody who's built this company. It's his baby. And, and in fact, many of the top 
members of management, maybe the middle layers of management, even even lower down in, in, in the organization. A lot of those people have known um, the founder for years, maybe even decades, maybe their families, uh, he knows their families and has been with them forever. And, and a lot of them have a lot of loyalty uh, to the CEO. And it's not only at the employee the, level. The, it's, sorry, it's the, part. Ex, the ex-CEO the, the, who is the founder now from the outside, right? They have loyalties to him. Correct. Okay, cool. Right, right. And so you're trying to you know, to, to marshal the, the company in, in a defense against the activists typically. You know, let's say it was and, – and here, who do you trust? Um, can you trust the general counsel? Can you trust people in, uh, in the CFO's office? Um, is it possible that people – uh, may not want to do any kind of action that's really going to be aggressive against the the, the CEO, and, and maybe some of them are actually uh, hoping. I mean, I'm the founder, the, the, and, uh, the former CEO, and some of them are maybe even hoping that the, the founder does come back. Maybe they're not happy with the the new leadership and want to see the founder come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you'd mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of times when the founder is agitating from the outside, you know, he wants, like you said, his baby back, right? He wants to, uh, you know, partner maybe with a private equity firm or launch an effort to uh, buy out the business. Actually, I think that uh, the Barnes & Noble founder, Leonard Reggio, is, is, has talked about how, you know, he's participating in a strategic view that's trying to figure out a, whether he can do a buyout of Barnes and Noble uh, right now. And there are other activists in there trying, having different demands. Um, so I thought uh, if you're going to have a, like, and also there was that George Feldenkrais example. So if you have a situation where the founders on the outside wants not only is not even agitate, not only agitating for change, but also maybe has an unsolicited bid or, or wants to take over the company. How do you structure the, the board of directors? I mean, at Papa John's, the, the founders on the outside, but he's kind of on the inside too. He's on the board. He was kicked out from his chairman job. Um, you know, you can't have John doesn't sound like you can have the, 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 uh, the founder who's on the outside be on the special subcommittee of independent directors uh, you know, so how, and how do you identify whether the people on this independent subcommittee reviewing this unsolicited that are really independent enough? Yeah. And so typically in an activism defense situation, and there's a question I get all the time, you know, do you, does the board need to form a special committee? And, and more often than not in your, in your typical activism situation with the, uh, the non-founder uh, hedge fund activist, you ordinarily don't need a special committee. It's something that the the whole board could could uh, be involved in. Um, but in a situation where the founder uh, is is still on the board, uh, you may not be chairman anymore, but is still on the board. Then you would want to form a, a special committee, whether or not the the founder makes a bid to acquire the company. I mean, certainly, if he makes a bid. Um, it probably is going to be prudent, um, given the, the optics to set up a special committee. And then, and then the key is, you know, they have to be independent, but not only independent from a technical definition, but, um, because there could be litigation challenging the transaction, like many other M and A deals that they get challenged on, on an ordinary course, uh, from an optic standpoint, you want to say, okay, these three directors that we're going to put on the special committee, maybe it's four directors. Um, are they not only technically independent, but let's look at their, 
historical relationships with the founder? How did they come on the board? Um, what, what, what kind of personal professional relationships they have? I mean, obviously, if, if this is a director who goes on vacations every year with the founder and they're very, very close from a personal perspective, it's probably not optically the right person. So, and that can be shut off because it might be tough to find people who have no pre-existing ties or relationships, but you really got to find who are the three best or four best people that can meet that definition. So that's interesting that you can have a situation where they meet the NASDAQ and New York stock exchange listing rules for independence, but they, you know, they're like buddies with the CEO and uh, not really optically uh, independent enough. That's fascinating. Um, Okay, so uh, uh, yeah, they can't be the best friend, for example. Yet, um, so you'd mentioned before that the founders a lot of inside information about the company. Uh, well, I mean, we, we talked about before how like he hired a lot of the employees. You know, when the activist hedge fund is coming in from the outside, uh, very often they are coming in with not the most accurate information about the company. And uh, you know, if the activist hedge fund really understood a lot of the uh, goings ons or uh, the behind the scenes kind of elements of the business, maybe they would not be pushing for X, Y, Z, you know, you name their, you know, division spinoff or uh, some operational changes or cutting of general expense, uh, 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 SG&A expenses. So, but with the founder, if he's launching a campaign from the outside and he says, you know, this is what is the problem with the company, you know, he was just the CEO, you know, not too long ago. He's the founder. He was there from the beginning. Um, that's something you really have to factor in with the campaign that institutional investors will probably trust that he really understands the business, even though he's from the outside and uh, maybe he thinks that the new CEO has kind of wrecked it. Is that, is that a fair assessment? How do you deal with that? Yeah, I, I mean, we're often worried in activism campaigns that the activist is going to go and hire as consultants, former execs, former employees, and use those folks to get information about the company. You're, you're the, the activist has probably the best, highest quality information, the founder, about the company, and probably nobody on the planet is as expert on the company as, as the founder. So, so that does put the company at, at a significant uh, disadvantage. The advantage the company has is that the company also knows all the mistakes that the founder made that, that, and, and it's an extent that the company, uh, you know, w- wanted to attack the record of the founder. And, and, I, and I know we're going to talk about why that might not always be prudent. The company's got a lot of information to challenge some of the premises of, of what the founder is arguing for a path for unlocking value. But, but I think an important point here is that unlike in a typical activist situation, uh, this is the founder is typically not presenting four or five ideas and saying, if you implement this, I think this will unlock value. And there's a different vision for how we unlock shareholder value, whether it's the vesting asset, stock buyback, you know, all these like nip and tuck ideas that, that could be very, very good ideas. Uh, ordinarily, in my experience, the, the founder is looking to take his baby back. He wants the company back and he wants, he has some view, some vision about the company that only getting control back uh, is going to be able to allow them to execute on that. 
Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, you know, very often, so not only is the founder, it's hard to refute the arguments that the founder is making because he really, you know, institutional investors probably trust that he understands the business like you had suggested. But the founders often have huge stakes in these companies, much bigger than the activists do. For example, John uh, Schneider has a 30.9% stake in Papa John's. The company put a, a poison pill in, but grandfathered him, grandfathered him in. He can't buy, you know, any more shares, but he already has a 39 stake. Um, I wrote about this Pulte Group uh, campaign, which was um, launched by, that's a U.S. home builder, William Pulte, owned a 9% stake. Um, and it's interesting, that one, and uh, Elliott Management, the hedge fund activist, showed up with a 4.7% stake. And so it was a tag team between the activist hedge fund and the the founder, William Pulte, uh, that ultimately resulted in a settlement. But, uh, but anyways, the, the, the fact that the, the, the activist is this executive with a big stake, that's a big deal too, right? That, uh, um, you know, something the company has to consider when they're uh, responding and, you know, whether if, if, the, if the founder decides to launch a proxy contest uh, the way uh, George Feldenkrais did, uh, you know, how do you, you, you have to consider that as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a, there's a big difference between an activist with a five, a stake with between five and 10%, which is what we ordinarily will see like in a small cap or even a large cap and, and a uh, activist that has a, a 30% stake. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a big, it's a big head start to have that much stock uh, in, uh, in one hand. So what the thing that you were su- suggest to me when we chatted about this before, the, um, uh, I guess you had suggested that the company, they can't really refute the, the data that the founder is bringing up with his campaign for change at the company, but the company can, can look to the future. Is, is that right? How do you uh, talk a little bit about that? How can the yeah, company respond yeah. with the, in, in that kind of situation? Yeah, no, no, the company could, could challenge the founder okay. and they could refute the, the founder's vision. I, I think what I was saying and um, is that attacking the founder's record and putting the founder's record and legacy on trial is is ultimately more often than not not a great strategy because if you're a company that that may be pursuing strategic alternatives and maybe looking for paths to unlock value um i can tell you as as uh, someone who's who's done a ton of MA over my career i've never seen a banker and, and I'm sure there's not a banker on the planet that would say, as part of our data room, let's put in the data room, the top 20 mistakes that the company has made over the past 10 years. That might be just a helpful thing, <laughs> even though we've moved past them. Let's just put, let's just put in the data room, our top 20 mistakes. Uh-huh. I mean, nobody does that. Right. And, and nobody would offer that up as an, as an appendix to the disclosure schedule. And so the idea that we're going to publicize for the world to see, these are the top 20 things that our founder did wrong and we shouldn't have done, but we did, but we're moving past them now. Why would you want to tell anybody? Why would you want to get into a discussion about that? I mean, uh, you know, there's all this transparency that is required, legally required for, for an M&A transaction, but I don't think that's required. It's not required 
to go out there and, and to make that level of disclosure. But that that is what sometimes people might be tempted to do, right. thinking this is a typical activism situation. Right, that you can like criticize the founders and his background, but now it comes back to hurt you. <laughs> you had suggested, I think, once this is like a divorce, right? How, like, you want yeah. uh, yeah. to, it sounds like a very different situation when the hedge fund is targeting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you think of the analogy to a the divorce, and, and and that's a situation where um, um, one member of a family says to another member of a family, "Ultimately, you can't be a member of this family anymore." Mm-hmm. And it's often very they're often very acrimonious. Mm-hmm. They're very emotional, and 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 rationality doesn't always prevail, mm-hmm. and. And, and it is kind of like that. It's not necessarily like a business deal. You know, it's one thing, you know, when a company takes the founder and says, we're going to kick you upstairs. We're going to make you chairman. We're going to make you chairman. Emeritus. You're going to have still have an office at the company and you're still going to be greeted and respected as a member of the family. Mm-hmm. But then you have a situation where we're going to kick you out of the company. You're, you're persona non grata. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to disas- do everything we can to disassociate ourselves with you. Well, that is like a divorce, right? I mean, that is, and by the way, our mutual friends in the past, anyone who is continues to be friends with you can't be friends with me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that sounds a lot like a divorce. And I think, you know, that is what is often the case in some of these situations. And it doesn't need to be like that. It doesn't need that if, if a company does a lot of planning and thinking, about this and preparing for, you know, this is part of the management succession discussion. Mm -hmm. Uh, They can avoid getting into a situation where the separation of the founder turns into a divorce and maybe turns into a, an acrimonious proxy contest. Mm-hmm, yeah, no, so that's interesting. So the family, if they become publicly acrimonious, that hurts the family ultimately. Just like the uh, the family of the company is hurt if there's a public spat between the family. So you had suggested you should look to the future. The company should say, you know, this is how we plan to grow the business, and and not really target the ex the ex CEO slash founder uh, most directly. Is that is that a fair way of describing it? I mean, that's one strategy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Particularly now, now there, there could be situations where the CEO, the founder, is not closely associated with the brand and and is is not a household name and and the legacy is not you know a cultural thing that everyone is kind of aware of about the founder and his history of starting the company. Um, but in a situation where you have a founder that is so closely associated with the company and attacking, and it would be hard to attack the founder without doing damage to the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, then I would focus my, my attacks on, on a vision for the future. Mm-hmm. And, and I would try to give as little attention as possible to um, the founder's previous record and any mishaps and, and, and really it's, we have a great platform. We have a great foundation for growth, but this is how we're going to build on that foundation. I don't want to, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to start pulling, pulling pillars out of the foundation right. and saying, well, some of our foundation is shaky because of our founder. Um, you know, and we can think of a whole bunch of companies where the founder, you know, not, this is not currently, you know, at any situations there, but, you know, think of like the Walt Disney company, right? I mean, 
what an incredible legacy uh, that Walt Disney left and built this amazing, amazing company. And, you know, and, and he's been long gone. But I mean, imagine somebody taking on Walt Disney. I mean, how could you possibly do that and, and not do damage to the company? Right. I mean, and there are lots of companies you could think of that are, you're that are like about that. The, uh, you're talking about like the Roy Disney situation with the Michael Ovitz and, uh, and the uh, uh, Michael Eisner, I mean, and all that, that whole situation. Well, from, well, well I mean, Roy Disney was another version of that because right. it was Roy Disney, the nephew. That yeah, wasn't actually, that wasn't Roy Disney, you know, senior, the, the brother. Um, but, but even that, right. I mean, attacking someone with the last name Disney, Right, right yeah. that that has that that had all kinds of complications to it, right? right? Um, but and that was, but he certainly wasn't Walt Disney, right? He that wasn't, is, he yeah. wasn't, uh, he wasn't Walt Disney, the legend. He was more Roy, Roy the uh, uh, the, the nephew and and a financier. He ultimately right, right, became right. a financier. Ultimately, founded an activist investment fund. That's right, Shamrock Holdings. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. so there's another angle to this that uh, I wanted to get to. Yeah. So at Morgan Lewis, you guys do a lot of working with companies that are not currently targeted by activists uh, just to prepare themselves. And as I said at the, with the statistics at the top of our conversation, you know, there are 11 situations like this that emerged this year, 11. Um, so, the, you know, expect a lot of these companies with an ex-CEO founder on the outside looking in, uh, particularly if the, if the stock price is not doing well, the company's not performing that well, uh, you know, uh, they, they, maybe they're not prepared. I mean, so t- talk about it. Should they be, I mean, the, you, you had suggested before that so many companies are ready for these hedge fund activists, but they're not prepared for their founder to come in and launch a campaign. And, and it seems like they'd be even less prepared if the founder finds an activist hedge fund and together they target the business as we saw at the Pulte Group. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I, I we, you, you started off this discussion, uh, we were talking about the differences between founder, former CEO led activism campaigns and other activism campaigns. And I think there's, there's a ton of differences, but one of the biggest differences is that notwithstanding all the preparedness exercises that are being led by bankers and proxy solicitors, law firms, consultants, um, I would suggest to you that it is rare that people are doing preparedness exercises and saying, what happens if your current CEO, the founder who has 20% of the stock, what happens if when you move him on at some point, um, what happens if he goes rogue and decides to bring an activism campaign? Let's do a scenario planning exercise. Let's go spend some money on that. I I mean, I, I would suggest to you, Ron, that that's probably not being done all that, all that frequently. Um, I mean, it's still a challenge to get a lot of companies to do preparedness drills absent the founder situation, just with response to the typical activists, but lots of companies are doing that. Okay. I just don't think they're doing it with respect to the founder. And so what would that look like? Um, I mean, there's a couple of things that you could do. Um, one is thinking about as part of the succession plan, um, uh, when the, the founder is going to eventually give up the reins, um, and, and, and there's going to be some agreements and exit and severance. Well, in the, in the severance separation agreement, um, what, uh, what do we say about non-disparagement? What do we say about the standstill? Mm-hmm. Um, what do we say about confidentiality? I mean, that is you don't see a lot of separation. You don't see a lot of separation agreements that have standstills in them. Why not? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that is fascinating. Um, and, you know, of course, we also see a lot of activist hedge funds targeting companies run by their founder and that the activist is saying the founder, you know, not the guy to take it to the next level. So they push the founder out. And then I guess the founder, this is not funny, but the founder could then come back and uh, launch a campaign down the road after the activist hedge fund has kicked them out of the company. And by the, I guess I, I hear your point that the, uh, the severance package has to think about this as uh, as a serious. Well, what about option. moving the stock? Should we try to place the founder's stock? Are we comfortable having somebody who's we're, we're moving them out of the company, and we want that individual to still have thirty percent stock mm-hmm. that could somehow fall into unfriendly hands? I mean, what yeah. happens if the founder dies and then the estate gets the money, the the, the, the stock? What happens then? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean. And these are questions that maybe a board, the special committee, independent director, a subset of the board should be proactively thinking about as part of succession planning, but kind of a, a, a nuance on succession planning in terms of how do we plan for how we're going to deal with the founder and how do we prevent that founder from going rogue? Right, right. So that's this is a lot of stuff for us to think about here, Keith. I really appreciate you taking the time. You've been listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast, and we had uh, Keith Gottfried at Morgan Lewis uh, run through some very fascinating stuff. So thanks a lot of time. Thanks for taking the time, Keith. Thank you, Ron. Really appreciate it. 